And Jerusalem was no backwater city in the Roman Empire, although no one really wanted to go there because it was always in conflict. Hundreds of thousands of people came to town twice a year and filled it up. It was a major uh, crossroads of trade to the eastern half of the empire. The most learned people knew about Jerusalem and were there, and there in the temple were the most learned teachers of God's law, and Jesus was holding them enraptured by his teaching at age 12. You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Would you please join me for a word of prayer? Gracious Lord Jesus, we continue our trek through the longest portion of your teachings preserved for us in Scripture. And since they are your teachings, Lord, we pray for your enlightenment as we approach them. For you are the light which shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome you. Strengthen and bless us, Lord, as we come to your holy words. May we come to a right understanding of them, that we may live in accordance with them, and trust for all for you. This we ask in your most precious and holy name, which is forever Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, our sermon series continues on the Sermon on the Mount. A reminder that all the old versions, all the old uh, sermons are on the uh, internet and they'll, they'll all hang together when it's done. But these lines we reflect on today mark the first turning point in the sermon. Up till now, what the sermon has been have been the blesseds, the Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. These are declarations of what God is doing. For those who are gathered there. Now Jesus is going to begin to instruct them on what is required of them in in turn. My friend Pastor Kathy Amlung tells a story about doing a children's sermon. And she does the children's sermon much the way I do. You sit on the floor and the kids come and they gather around you. And and you, uh, you ask questions of them trying to get them to engage you. Now that's dangerous. Because you don't know what they're going to say to you in return. <laughs> um, so one time she was trying to prompt them, get, a, get them to respond to her. And uh, she was saying, she said, well, you know, there's this, there's this thing which, which lives in my yard. And, you know, it's gray and lives in a tree and it collects nuts and it has a bushy tail. And the, what do you think that is? And a little girl timidly raised her hand and said, Well, normally I'd say a squirrel, but since we're in church, is it Jesus? <laughs> Jesus seems to be the safe answer when you're in church. <laughs> 
And because we're in church, if I asked you right now who the smartest person was who ever lived, you'd probably respond, Jesus. But in a poll done on the streets of the United States, not one person gave that answer, even the ones who called themselves Christians. They would always answer somebody like Einstein or this or that uh, you know, person who'd won the Nobel Peace Prize or just generically say, well, probably rocket scientists or brain surgeons. You know, who are these smartest people? But we should think of Jesus as the smartest person who ever lived. First and foremost, because he's God in the flesh. But secondarily, because the stories we have about him testify to that. What is the first thing we see Jesus do in the Holy Scriptures after we see him in a manger? Let me remind you of the story. Mom and Dad have left town. They were in Jerusalem. They went on a day. They they were leaving. Three days into their journey out of town, they discover that Jesus isn't with them. Now, don't, don't think too harshly of Joseph and Mary here because they were traveling with the whole family group and it was probably somewhere between 60 and 100 people as they were traveling. So they think, they think Jesus has been hanging out with Uncle Mike and uh, they discover in the third day in that he isn't. So they come rushing back to Jerusalem as every parent has, knows the feeling when you've lost a child in a shopping mall or something like that. And they go looking for him and where do they find him? In the temple. And he is holding spellbound by his teaching the most learned people of his day. And Jerusalem was no backwater city in the Roman Empire, although no one really wanted to go there because it was always in conflict. Hundreds of thousands of people came to town twice a year and filled it up. It was a major uh, crossroads of trade to the eastern half of the empire. The most learned people knew about Jerusalem and were there. And there in the temple were the most learned teachers of God's law. And Jesus was holding them enraptured by his teaching at age 12. Jesus would go on to be able to pierce through all the layers of human interaction and cut to the quick of who we are. He would be able to see the corruption in the religious system that was meant to be a blessing to the people of Israel, but instead had become a burden and yet still remain a faithful Jew himself. He would introduce to the world an ethical system that would forever change ethical discourse for all of humanity, whether you call him Lord and Savior or not. And he was a carpenter from the most impoverished class in the Roman Empire. I'd say he was intelligent. And our failure to see him and think of him as the most intelligent person who's ever lived leads us to disregard his teachings in a practical way. In almost every statistic, in almost every way you could analyze the population, the Christian population looks largely like those who don't call themselves Christians. Because we think of Jesus and we we are good at thinking of him as holy. We're good at thinking of him as sanctified and kind of rarefied and sort of ethereal and we almost can't touch him. You know, good for salvation. Maybe in a way, 
kind of pathetic, good, good enough for the cross. But we don't think of him as a professor lecturing the class and everyone's frantically taking notes because he's, what he's saying is so brilliant and you don't want to miss a word of it. But when we think of him that way, we should attend to what he's saying because the whole context of this sermon, the whole structure of it, assumes that the kingdom of heaven is at hand for the people who are listening. First and foremost in the person of Jesus Christ himself and secondarily in what he's teaching them. He is assuming by the very structure of this sermon that the kingdom of heaven is there for them to take hold of and live within. It's not just for the eschaton or the parousia, to use the technical theological terms, the end times, when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. And we hope all this good stuff he's talking about is what heaven looks like. This teaching is for here and now in this world. But as a parishioner said to me one time at the back of the church, well, pastor, it's back to real life now. Jesus is offering us real life in this teaching. Real human life, real eternal life, the only kind of life that's going to last forever for us to begin to enjoy right here and right now. Dallas Willard, from whom I've just learned so much, just a brilliant, brilliant Bible reader and a professor of philosophy on top of it, um, helpfully defines the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven as the effective reach of God's will. When he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead, everything will be done according to his will, and there will be nothing outside of his will. But in the meantime, God's kingdom extends as far as the will of God extends into the world, and it extends through those who have received his word and embraced it in faith. Or, it doesn't. <laughs> Theologians, Lutheran and Reformed, will, will say one of the most important things to be able to do when you're reading the Bible is separate your imperatives from your indicatives. Okay, now that's technical, technical terminology here about verb tenses. Indicatives are what God has done for you. We've heard a bunch of those, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those are declarations, indicatives. This is what God has done. He is breaking in and coming to these people. Imperatives are commands. What God wants us to do. Now, salvation is not something to which we take faith and add works and then we mix it all together. Everyone agrees on this now. It took 500 years of the discussion between Reformed and Catholics. The Catholics agree with it, with it now too. We, all, we have a slightly different understanding of how it works, but we all agree on this. So, if salvation is a gift, what are the commands for? What are these imperatives for? Because this is what the turning point is in the sermon. Now we're moving from God's promises, the indicatives, to the imperatives and God's commands. These commands are to teach us how. Teach us how to 
to live as the kingdom people God is claiming us to be. We want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we want it to be done, as Luther said in the small catechism, in us first, so that it can be done through us into the world. This is the great gift of what Jesus is doing. This is how the kingdom is at hand for you. This is how you are going to have eternal life, not just then, at the end, but starting now. What we call the Great Commission, which ends the Gospel of Matthew. Go therefore to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That... The, way, the verb tenses in the Greek there make very clear is that evangelism is not supposed to be a separate check mark for us as Christians. It's something we do as we go on our way. Our own obedience to Christ producing such life in us that those who we encounter want to know about the God whom we serve because our lives are so different in character. And they're so different in character because we know the character of God. That's why the sermon begins the way it does. If you go on the internet today, you will find lots of debates about the character of God. From Richard Dawkins claiming him to be the most uh, unpleasant figure in fiction to, on the far end of things, people, kind of pictures of Jesus sort of doe-eyed and not very effective, not the kind of person you put in charge of anything. The people who were gathered for this sermon have learned about the character of God because he's already, they've encountered him through Jesus. He's the God who blesses those who are so impoverished they have nothing spiritually. Those, he's the God who comes to even those who are mourning because of the tragedies that inevitably accompany life in a fallen world. He's the kind of God who will bring an end or a slaking of that thirst for justice. He is the kind of God who breaks in and seeks the lost. And now, they get to be a reflection of his character to the world. This is why they're like salt. Do you know salt is the most commonly used spice transculturally of any spice out there. Why is that? I'm looking at an Italian cook as I say this. Why? Because salt wakes up the taste buds. We need salt to live, but you can get enough salt to live in just the food you have without anything else on it. But we add salt to almost everything because salt makes the, the sweet sweeter and the spicier spicier and the, the, you know, all those things. It brings all those flavors out and together. One of the great inventions of my lifetime has been adding salt to chocolate. I love at Christmas time now you can get, you can get uh, sea salted hazelnut creams. <laughs> they didn't have those when I was a kid. <laughs> when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, that's what he means. You're to get out there and make God's character known. Yeah, we get little glimmers of it here and there, but by our presence, we're to make it more available, more people more aware of it. And the same way with the light in a room. I've got four lamps in my living room. Our one torch light that points up at the ceiling does more, is more effective at lighting that room than all my table lamps combined. Because it's up high and it casts light everywhere. That is who we are to be out in the world because we have learned about the character of this God. 
And as Jesus instructs us on how to live as his people, which is what the rest of the sermon is going to be about, we will have the ability to have his life in us. The presumption is we're with Jesus through all of this. And it's his life that's going to work in us and through us to sanctify us and to have an impact on the world around us. So this is, these, are the, these are the transition lines that point us in that way. And next week, Jesus will be talking to us about the ongoing impact of God's law or its ongoing relevance. And after that, what a kingdom heart looks like. Not external obedience, but when the heart has been changed so that our actions change naturally. I, was, I had a different... Uh, example plan to end my sermon, but around 5 a.m. I woke up this morning and God changed it up on me. Um, I was trying to think of what would be a perfect way of describing the gift of eternal life we've been given in Jesus. Um, and I, I got this new idea. This week um, was wonderful. I got to celebrate my 25th anniversary uh, to marriage to the most wonderful lady I've ever met. Her taste in men's questionable. But other than that, she's brilliant. <laughs> um, the f- first seven years of our marriage, seven years, were dedicated to helping her get her PhD. She doesn't carry it around. She doesn't wear it on her shoulders. She doesn't wear a vest with you know, patches on the, sh- on the elbows. She doesn't look like a professor, but it's what she is. And um, she studied Gaelic music for those seven years and uh, the political uses it's put to and stuff like that. And as part of her research, um, one of the best six weeks of our marriage was we went and crashed on a friend's floor in, in Glasgow, in Scotland, and went to the second largest Celtic festival in the world there. Well... It's not something we see day to day in our lives since then. It's been kind of on a back burner since she got that PhD. Um, She still teaches, but we don't talk about it every day. And uh, about eight months ago, my kids and I cooked up a plan for a 25th wedding anniversary gift. The third largest Celtic festival in the world is held in Nova Scotia. And um, we made the plans to get the passports and do the whole nine yards and take my wife um, to that festival. Um, we're not sure with COVID whether it's going to be this fall or next fall, but we're going. Well, on our anniversary, she got a card that explained what was going to happen. And we found some artwork on the internet. And we did pretty well with it, as well as we could. Um, but... It's just a card. It's a gift. She's been given the gift. But if my wife takes the card and puts it on a shelf and never takes the trip, she gets no benefit from the gift. Yes, salvation is a gift. Eternal life is a gift of our gracious and good God. But if we don't learn how to use it, we get no benefit from it. Life is a gift, but living is a verb. And if you want to live eternally, you want to do the things that Jesus is going to outline in this sermon. Blessed are we to whom Christ has come. And that blessing will flow out into the world, will become part of the effective reach of God's will. 
when we learn to live the way He's teaching us. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Gracious Lord Jesus, as you told in the parable of the 99 sheep and one goes missing and how the good shepherd goes to seek that one, you have come to seek us, the fallen away children of God. You've sought us, you've claimed us as your own, you've spoken into our darkness with your own eternal light, and now, Lord, you're teaching us a new way to live, a way that will transform our hearts and not just our actions. Grant us, Lord, listening ears. Grant us obedient feet and hands and lips and minds. Help us to trust that you are just as smart as we know you are. And to trust your voice above the other voices which clamor for our attention, which tell us a sure-proof plan to accomplish X, Y, or Z. Because it's only your plan, Lord, only your plan, that will give us life eternal, both in the next world and right here and now. Life which is of your own authorship, bubbling up within us to be a blessing to those around us as you have been a blessing to us. Keep us salty, Lord. Help us be a light that does not wish to be hidden. And this we ask in your precious name, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Sleeping my presence, my love.